welcome everyone. Um, I have quite a treat for you. I have Dimitri Bianco. Dimitri has a, has a YouTube channel, about 8,000 subscribers. I see that he has about 600,000 views and of all these videos put together. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been doing that for four years. You've been uploading. Yeah, it's been about like four years, almost five years. And uh, I mean, he's a, he's a YouTube uh, quasi star, but he's also an actual quant. You, you actually have a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you're basically a quant, interesting and obviously uh, sharing information, and I manage a program. And it's interesting enough because uh, when I uh, took over the program, I, you know, I was looking for someone to talk to, and I, I did look at a lot of your videos, anything having to do with the ranking and what is a quant, and I've learned a lot in the past year to actually doing it, but also learning from, from your experience. So. I mean, this is a show by you, really, and I wanted to basically ask you a bunch of questions having to do with the, with the programs, with the, with the MFE program, the Master of Financial Engineering. Who could use this video or this podcast? I would say that students looking at a program, uh, students looking to become quants or people in, in the field that are looking to maybe to move and see what, what is a prospect, because quant is such a big word, as I've learned in the past year or so. When we talk about quant jobs, what do we mean? So there's a lot of ways to break down quant finance in general. And I think Mark Joshi had a paper and it had, I don't know, like five types of quants, six types of quants. And then over the years, it kind of got narrowed down to four types of quants. But from my perspective, I really just see it as there's only two types of quants out there. The first one's going to be model development quant. So these are going to be guys that are building... Um, mathematical, statistical models that are going to be doing anything from pricing to like customer retention to repossessions of like mortgages and auto trading side, right? Modeling volatility. So you have one side that's doing all the development. And then on the other side of that, I see more or less the validation quant. Uh, and the validation quant does a similar job, but a little bit different. They don't build the models. They review all the actual models, test all the assumptions behind the models to make sure they're sound for use. And then they also look at, you know, different ways, like new creative ideas on how can we create like synthetic data? How do we run the models through that? How do we put them through rigorous tests and come up with some side of kind of solution? There's two kind of non, I call them non-quants and a lot of people will probably be upset when I say it, but the first one is going to be uh, model implementation or guys that are just programmers. So I ran into guys that are making, you know, two, $250,000, but they're just computer science undergrads that are working at hedge funds. Their main goal and their passion is computer science. They don't have a clue what a stochastic processes is or how the stock market works or any of that, but they're really good at what they do. But I don't consider them quants just because you're not doing the math and stats and theory behind finance and quantitative finance. And then that other piece is going to be the trader. I don't consider most traders these days as quants, even if you work in a quantitative fund. The reason being, I think, comes down to the skill set. So traders are very unique. They have very different skills than an average quant. And a lot of them now at larger firms are kind of divvying out where you're monitoring the trading platform and the systems and you're making decisions and you're using the tools that the quants built, but you're not actually doing any analysis or analytics. You're just kind of using what the quants provide you. So that's kind of my take on the quant job and kind of atmosphere around it. Okay, lots of information. <laughs> Basically, you're saying development and validation. So where would you fit someone that's doing a risk management? Because this is a key word that we're using, you know, 
you're going to get a job in risk management. You are going to be a data analyst. Are you saying that you could be a developer and a validator within that, that realm of... So I guess we take a step back a little bit. So if you're developing a model, I kind of see two halves too. You have the investing side, which would be like hedge funds and wealth management. And then you have the banking side who's actually creating products and offering them. Somebody's going to develop those models and you can work on something like a pricing team. So you're a pricing quant. You'd be model development because you're building those models. And then there's always somebody on the back end testing it. And I should note, so this isn't really, validation is not really common in a lot of investing firms. And I think that's why a lot of these hedge funds go bankrupt because they don't really know what they're doing. And uh, Marcos Lopez de Prado, who wrote a book on advanced financial machine learning, uh, he mentions in his book in the beginning, like you need to have these structures of development and validation and have segregation between the two. But there's lots of different types of jobs you can kind of narrow it in. Like research quant, I would consider like model development. They're developing strategies and models and testing them. And then when you actually implement those, you'd have validation teams that would test that. But yeah, for risk management, we have the same structure. Somebody builds models to price like loans, for example, and then somebody, or value at risk, somebody builds a model for that. And then somebody would test those assumptions and maybe puts in different distributions for that. Okay, so uh, I would tend to agree because uh, I don't see, I, yeah, trading and, and, and I always tell the people that, you know, you, you're, not, you're not here to become a, a programmer. You know, you're not going to be doing some trading. Although, you know, having said that, there's lots of forces at play here, right? I mean, everywhere mm -hmm. we see um, a data analyst, data analyst program. You know, what do they mean by that? What is, what is, what is a data analyst? Because that could be anything. It could be a data analyst in, in, in risk management. So I'll tear that down a little bit. For me, data analyst is like a really bad term because A, it's so vague and it could be in any industry and anything but I actually rank them based on academic rigor. So I would put like quants and probably statisticians, econometricians in this league where it's like, they're not just modeling data and patterns. They're looking at very high level assumptions and theory behind it. And then underneath of that, you would have people that would be more like real data scientists who would be people that have theory and skills and tools, but they're not necessarily working only on the stat side where a quant would do both. And then the last level would be data analytics, which is more or less like business analytics. And instead of looking at rigorous statistical models, a lot of times they're just doing like simple OLS regressions. I've seen a lot of them. So I used to work in corporate finance as well, doing business analytics, but we would abuse like the beta coefficient between your X and your Y. And we would say, oh, it's a slope. We'll just apply it to three other calculations where when you come from a quant level, you can't really do that because there's no theory to support that that beta will continue to hold. So just kind of different levels of it. But so why do you think it's coming from? Why is it suddenly, why is data such a big keyword? Because, uh, uh, I, and I did a podcast on that. I mean, machine learning and all these things, they've been around since the 60s. The data <laughs> is capturing everyone's mind now, as opposed to investments or the stock market. Yeah, so I think the reason behind that is looking at, so data science is kind of a key part of this. Data science is realistically a bunch of computer scientists who used to use if this, then that. That was how they made models. It was just if statements. There's no statistics involved, just if statements. And like you're saying, right, neural networks has been around since like, I think like the 30s and 40s. And then there was a big boom in the 80s. And then it kind of died out again. And now 2010 and on with this another big boom. But a lot of those advancements aren't in the theory behind it. It's just all this computational power. So the technology is advancing to the point where everybody's grasping data 
and trying to find like a new solution, something cool and exciting. Mm. And I think that's where the big data side's coming in. Even in banks now, right? We have processing that we do, we have our standard models, and now we're all running out there saying, hey, what can we do with data science? And now we have these servers like Amazon Web Services, for example, can we pull in more data and run that? And then on the trading side too, so throw like two sigmas and Citadel and all that out there, a lot of the successful firms now, whether it be ethical or not, are running out and grabbing different sets of data that we've never used for trading in the past. So I've seen the example, uh, somebody went out and paid for a bunch of data from a satellite and the satellite's recording from like Skyview, this warehouse to see how many trucks are coming out. And then based on the amount of trucks that come out of this warehouse, you can pinpoint what the sales is going to look like, which is then going to give you an in indication of what the you know, earnings are going to look like for the quarter. And you can get that information before it hits the stock market. So again, is that ethical? I don't, I don't really know. That is exactly <laughs> what I've been telling my students because historically when we used to do financial analysis is get the cash flow, get the balance sheet and get um, the, the income statement. But now, I know that there was a firm in China, uh, an AI firm, and what they did to do um, uh, credit to at least uh, risk analysis, they would find out how often you kept your cell phone charged, right? <laughs> you're a responsible person and, they've, and, they, and they saw a, a correlation between that and you being a good customer, a good paying customer for your credit card, and they say they're using that. You, this, this is a great example uh that that you're using now yeah we have so basically we have more data and the way we used to do things especially in financial analysis is going to change and you can't possibly do this in excel you have to become a data engineer you got to start working with big data i think so basically what you're saying is we have all this advent of new data coming in and and we always had the ability to do it it's just that we didn't have the data but now it's you know through your iphone through amazon and all these things and people doing purchases online. So that, I guess that's where all the programs have that in there, you know, data analytics, that's a key word. But I guess you're right, data scientist, probably a data engineer. You mentioned hedge fund. What's going on with a hedge fund? Because originally everybody wanted to work in a hedge fund when they do the MFT. So I think it's important to look at the finance industry's evolution over time. So if we go back, I don't know, let's say like early 2000s, probably 2005, 2006, hedge funds are hot, they're making a lot of money. Nobody has a clue how they're making this money, but everyone's super excited to get involved. These hedge funds are just bringing on loads of financial engineers. There's not a lot of them out there at that point, but they're paying three, four $400,000 to start. And then you're looking at careers you're making, you know, seven, 800,000, maybe a million dollars to be in a hedge fund. So I think that started this big hype and this big buzz. And if you look at a lot of the successful hedge funds that have been around for a long time, people get really excited. And they wanted to get in this industry. They want to make a lot of money. As time's going on, I think they're starting to realize the funds that are kind of like that old traditional finance method, which is, you know, that, that one guy and he's super smart and he's making all these decisions on his own and he's bringing these massive bonuses. It's dead. That's no longer a model anymore. And the reason being is that when you have quantitative finance, now I go in and say, I have this really great idea and I want to trade on it. I need to do it very quickly to compete in the algorithmic world and to prevent being taken advantage of from the algorithms, from other firms. So now it's like, I need to like program all this in and like probably C++, C or C sharp, something like that. But I can't do that, right? I'm not an expert in programming. So now you got to bring on a computer scientist. And then you start getting into like, well, the math's getting really complicated. So now you got to bring on a mathematician or a quant to do that. And so by the time the whole day's over and you're making money in quantitative finance, 
you realize you had a team of at least 10, 15 people. And so now when bonuses are coming out and now when profitability is changing, it gets divvied between everybody. So now it's a team sport instead of the olden days where it used to be an individual sport. And the traders were like these gods that just made tons of money. And everyone else was obviously dumb just processing paperwork. At least that was the attitude. And so now it's kind of changed to a team sport. Um, I think now that the market also has been running for so long that everybody's making money as it's going up. But a lot of firms are struggling to beat the benchmarks and to keep up with it. And so I think now the hedge fund world's kind of shrinking back where you see a lot of firms. Uh, I think AQR Capital recently mentioned a 10% layoffs across the board. It might have been another firm, but one of these big firms laying off 10% of their staff. They can't keep up with the markets. They can't. And so I think that's kind of the change here is that the paradigm is shifting to now it's a team sport. You got to split the earnings evenly. And I think a lot of young guys now are looking at the excitement of the data and the data science. So a lot of us are kind of leaving to go to data science or technology or something a little more freeing, whereas banking and finance is very structured and lacks the freedom sometimes. So if you're out there and you're starting out and you want to look at the MFE program, you have to look at it as, yeah, you, you, you could end up in a, in a hedge fund, but be aware that it's not what it used to be. And, you know, you have, and obviously, you know, think of it, think a bit about data and analyze data, you know, engineer or data scientist, you need to, you need to, to, to at least understand what's going on at that level. So I, I'm an undergraduate, I'm good in math, uh, maybe I'm good in finance, I'm, I'm, I'm good with numbers and data, and I wanna pick a program. You're saying that there are two kinds of programs out there. <laughs> okay, so this is the hot topic. This is probably one of my most popular YouTube videos, which is fake financial engineering programs, uh, versus real financial engineering programs. I guess this kind of goes into like the history and how programs are put together. And again, it comes back to the money. So the way I view it is before 2007 and 2008, you had this market that was booming with like mortgage-backed securities, a lot of derivative products. And so again, there wasn't a lot of financial engineers. There weren't a ton of programs in the US at that time or even globally. And so everybody's trying to get in to make money on this and the banks are wanting quants for financial engineers from these programs. And there's not very many programs. So of course the salaries are huge. So everyone's excited, everyone's making money. And then after 2008 and everything crashes, a lot of these derivative markets just dried up. So now I don't need a financial engineer. So someone who specifically engineers financial products, uh, we just don't need all these people. So they laid off a bunch of them and they went into other industries or fought over other jobs. And you kind of had this lull from 2008 through about 2010, 2011, but there just weren't a lot of jobs. After 2010, that's when CCAR hit for regulation in the US. And so now all of a sudden the hot job was no longer those financial engineers, it was quantitative finance doing risk management. So a lot of these guys already had the finance background, the modeling, they needed jobs somewhere, they're probably underemployed for the last two years. And now you see a bunch of them jumping into the 2010 kind of run here. And right about then, you saw another handful of programs being added in. A few here, a few there. It got a little more robust. I think in about 2013 when I applied, uh, there was maybe 20, 22 programs in North America as a whole. And that was it. There was no one else. Right about 2017, so now from 2010, you have this big boom of risk management. We need all these extra people. I think universities are trying to be business savvy and how do we make more money and do more degrees. So what they started figuring out is we can combine the finance program, the engineering program, the math program, the stats program. We'll kind of push it all together into a bunch of programs. 
but by the time you hit 2017, it was done and over. It was too late. But right about that time is when you saw a ton of these business programs coming onto the scene where essentially you take an MBA program, you tack in a Python class, you put in one stochastic calculus class, and then we restamp it. And now this is a financial engineering degree who's gonna work on Wall Street and make millions. And now when you look at the, the landscape of MFE programs, there's tons and tons and tons of them. And I go on QuantNet and I see like the lists and I think, oh, this is all of them. And then people start reaching out to me and they're like, hey, can you rate this program and that program? I didn't know these schools had programs. I can't rate them. I don't really know anything about it. And so that was kind of the second boom in selecting these real versus fake is that a lot of these real programs are, again, based in heavy mathematics, heavy statistics. They're only accepting math students, engineering students, computer science, where a lot of the fake programs now are in this money-making realm where it's, we've got a business degree, we are going to throw on a few math programs, and then we're just going to relabel this and try to market it. And some of them have been extremely successful. Again, probably the ranking systems have helped them in the way they structure it. But there's a big difference in what you're actually learning between real financial engineering programs and kind of these fake hybrid ones. I guess what you're saying is that uh, if you're, you're going to pick a program right now, you might want to pick one that's been around for quite some time as opposed to the fancy <laughs> sticks together and it throw them out there. And I could see how that gets done. But, but trust me, I mean, universities are not that, that flexible uh, Basically, we started as, as a financial engineer, and now it's becoming more like a quant, like a risk management data. It's, it's morphing. And I know when I was on, in banking, you know, after all that happened in 2000, 2009, you know, they, they brought a slew of compliance people, right? Because you guys, you say, no, we got to make sure. And they had no idea what was going on. If you can't protect them, then prevent them from doing anything. And obviously, if you're an engineer of financial, what can you create? You can't create anything anymore because it's becoming more and more difficult. So I guess the lesson here uh, is uh, make sure that uh, you don't believe too much of the hype and you really kind of uh, look at the history. The concept, because, you know, uh, you're right. The quant has, quant net has about, I don't know, 25 to 30 or 25, 30 rank programs. And then you got a bunch of others below it. You got to go at mm-hmm. every single website. You got to know the history. Gee, I mean, how long is it going to, it's going to take forever to do something like that. But you need to be informed because once you're in it, now is not the time to realize, did I make a good choice or not? So since we are discussing the MFE program, let's maybe talk about the, the, the rankings there because we're in the same, same category. Because then as a consumer, then you say, listen, I don't have the time. Let me, let me, get, let me pick the number one or the number two, so at least I'm safe. So what is your, what is your beef? With the <laughs> okay, so let's circle back a little bit to part of the past question and part of this question together. Yeah. So the history, I think, is a big part of it, but it's also very concerning to me on the same side because I'm seeing a few new programs coming out, which I like to view as like diamonds in the rough. They're programs that are really putting the time and effort into making rigorous programs. Some of the new ones, like, would be good. And I'm also concerned on the other end because there's, I'm not going to name a specific name here, but one of the top rated programs, definitely top five, probably the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, whatever. I had one of their graduates who's been in the industry now for a good, I don't know, 10, 15 years. He came to me and was like, hey, this program is awesome. I learned a lot of material. I went back. I visited the campus. I talked to students. Like, it's not the same program. And now it's coming back to the fact that he's seeing all the data science coming in. And so what ends up happening, instead of doing a lot of depth with your financial engineering and quantitative finance, 
it's like they're trying to spread too many electives or it's like you end up taking again like some of the worst programs you take the stochastic calculus you know you take numerical methods like optimization courses and all of a sudden it's like you're wasting time taking a data science class but it's not depth you're just getting like here's an introduction this is how neural networks this is how gradient boosting works and then they quickly jump over to like another topic on like let's do i don't know a different type of decision tree like random forest and so I think some of these top programs that have been older need to be careful as well because they're starting to degrade their value, which is that highly rigorous analytical material in substitution for trying to cover too many topics at once. And I think it's hard to cover too many industries and too many tools if you don't really have the depth inside that program. Mm -hmm. So kind of something to think about because I, I know some programs are adding data science. I think that's good in many ways. But if you're going to do data science, you got to make sure that you're like digging really, really deep into the math and not just teaching these kids how to type in Python code and hit enter and TensorFlow generates the model for you. And we see that a lot in the industry is a lot of what we like to call button pushers where people are just pushing the button and models are coming out, but there's not a lot of kind of rigor behind it. Because it, there's, there's two kind of programs, right? There's the one that uh, have you set number of courses, but there's mm -hmm. lots of them with lots, as you mentioned, lots of electives. Like, uh, I mean, usually these programs have 30 credits, one to two years. So you start with uh, you have your core thing, and then you've got lots and lots of electives. How could, they, how could you put them all on the same standing, stack them up in terms of ranking when the, this, this program, within, even within the same program, you could have people doing a lot more machine learning, a lot less finance, and a lot more math, and a lot more... So it's kind of, uh, and you're right, I think they, they, they're trying to, but that, but that makes it even harder than for someone to say, oh, let me pick a, a program because uh, I guess unlike the MBA, which you kind of know what you're getting here, you know, you've got math, you've got engineering, you've got finance, now you've got um, machine learning, uh, some of them adding, adding blockchain in there. <laughs> <laughs> And it's hard to, like, for example, students always ask me, like, Dimitri, rank these programs. And I hate when the question's asked because electives are kind of like a double-edged sword. On one side, if you have the ability to customize your degree and you do take all those very rigorous classes, you create like this awesome program that's very specialized for you. But I've seen programs and I've been in programs where there's so many electives that students are out taking like the easiest class or the most fun. And so you have two students, same degree, same graduation year and everything. And one's like the super quant with an awesome job. And the other guy's working in like public policy or something that has no relation to quantitative finance. And so it's hard to separate these out when you're ranking programs and students, right? Everyone's applying for a job. Is their program good? Is it bad? Now you have to start digging into electives. And how does an employer know which electives were good electives versus bad electives? So it does really muddy the waters when you start adding more electives into a lot of these programs. It makes it challenging for the student and companies and programs and everything. So what do you do as a student? Do you look into each program individually? And because when we say look, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but when we say we look into the program, right now we're only talking about curriculum. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're gonna be taught, and I know everybody could basically there are so many math courses, so many finance courses, and so many engineering courses. No one is teaching something out there that's like that no one else is teaching. We're kind of have all the same curriculum, so. Right, and let's cover this. So this is a big point of me. I call it essentially like program fraud. It's how you manipulate your program to look better. So I've been, like, I, you know, I've been on YouTube forever. I'm currently watching these programs. They send me marketing nonsense all the time. 
somehow end up on these mailing lists, but you'll see programs that are essentially like an MBA and they've added a couple classes, which are going to be financial engineering classes. They've retitled it and nobody applies because everyone knows if you want to get into the banking side, you want an MBA, go get a real MBA with the MBA title on your resume. Don't go get the fake one. And then also don't get the fake financial engineering degree because it's not providing you any value. So these programs are basically kind of a worthless hybrid, but they got smart in the marketing. And so they started changing their course titles to match the course titles from other programs. And then the descriptions of those courses started changing. And then these students reach out to me and they're complaining like, you know, Dimitri, I'm in this program. It's terrible. I don't know what to do. How am I going to get a job? And they start telling me, I'm like, what course are you taking? And they're describing it. It's like they're covering a very business perspective. Like how do you use financial products? right? It's pretty simple. It's taught in corporate finance classes. Uh, I have a, a book we used. It's, I think it's by like Rost and Rubenstein, one of the most popular finance books. And it tells you general things on derivatives. But some students using that, and they consider that the course on derivatives, where you go to another program and they're covering, you know, like stochastic calculus and walking through the Black Shoals and trying to tear down like the risk neutral pricing kind of paradigm and how that works. But then again, for a student, right, it's horrible because you can't compare student program A and program B because they're not really being honest with you and telling you, hey, we're using this textbook and somebody else using this textbook. And by the way, you're going to cover twice the depth in one course versus the other one. So that makes it even <laughs> even more challenging to select a lot of these programs. I would say maybe what they should do is see, well, let's see where where the student that went to the to the program actually got a job. So you right. feel for at least, and, and you don't see that many often, more often you'll see, you know, we have a hundred percent employment. And I always tell my students, I said, listen, I mean, you're going to get a job, maybe mm -hmm. not out of graduation, but you, you're going to get a job. The, the trick of course, no, no, no. And as we talked about originally, you need to get a quant job. Right. Often some of my students and they get enamored with the money and they end up being investing. <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's not a quant job. That's an investment bank. You could have gotten that doing an MBA. But, but apart from that, uh, you know, they should take a look at, uh, and that's why I tell them to do look at where, so you could see actually what's going on. You know, and you could go on LinkedIn very easily, you know, find out who graduated from where and see where. But that's a lot of work. Right. Imagine you got to do for all 33 program and you see, okay, let me type in the school name, MFE, graduation and me see where they graduate because the website uh, don't often tell you exactly you don't get to see exactly what they're doing now mm -hmm. and if you'll see a post a child of one or two of course of, but you won't see them all right you get to pick let me see what these people are actually doing because that was a bigger issue that i had originally when i was asked to do this i said well i don't know i mean i don't know if this is good or bad yeah the ranking is the most obvious thing but as we've seen, uh, you know, there was a story with, uh, you know, uh, a university uh, where we are, where they basically concocted the numbers. Yeah. And I, I think part of that comes, I mean, a good example is my graduating class. So for a lot of people that know my background, I started in a financial engineering program. And then partway through, they said, hey, by the way, the two programs are fighting. We're going to cancel the program. So you're going to, you can finish it out. But again, you're going to have no value. <laughs> There's going to be no cohorts after you. So I transferred into a... Master of Applied Economics with the ability to continue to take all the financial engineering electives I wanted. So I basically molded this into the financial engineering master somewhat. But I had a friend of mine point out, he goes, you know, you didn't graduate from the MFE, you know, and you, I'd kind of like poking fun at me and I go, hey, hey, I said, how many of you guys from that graduating class of 52 students, how many of you are in financial engineering? And he goes, 
well, I guess about four or five of us. And I was like, exactly. And I think that's right. The takeaway here is if you're going to get the degree, you want to make sure you get a good job doing what you studied. But I think a lot of these programs are getting desperate and students. I mean, I was one of these students, right? Desperate at graduation. I need a job doing something. I've got to make money. And I started reaching out saying, hey, let's do investment banking because I have a finance undergrad. I've worked in corporate finance. But luckily it ended up working out for me and I ended up in the risk management side doing quantitative finance in the long run. So it is, uh, it is not a, an easy choice to make uh, unless you pick the, the more obvious uh, larger name and that's what ended up happening. Students end up with the name of the school. You know, it's got a good reputation, so it's got to be good. Right. Again, you know, they can, not everybody could go to these schools. There are other programs. And um, let's talk about, the, you said something about salary. You want to... Yeah, we could talk a little bit about salary here. I mean, salary, I think, is one of these things that a lot of students look at coming in. And I think it's smart to look at it, but I also think it's vastly misleading, both from a program ranking side, because salary is used all the time. And then also as graduates, right, you're looking at programs thinking, hey, if I invest $100,000 in tuition, I could come out making 120, like things will even out, I'll be good to go. But I think one of the big issues with salary is, A, if you're a student and you're coming into the program and you're going to maximize your money, don't go into quantitative finance. You can easily get an MBA and go get a job doing investment banking or doing traditional trading. And like students will point out in my comments sometimes like, hey, you can make more money being like a petroleum engineer. It's like, sure, you could, right? But the salary doesn't really indicate the quality of the job or the type of the job. Because again, you can make more money doing other jobs or other tasks. You could also make less money. So salary is tough. And then on the rankings, I think it's a pretty bad indicator what ends up happening with a lot of the business hybrid fake programs is a student comes in and they've got five, six years of experience in investment banking or in the banking sector. And then they go and get a two years master's and they come out and they're making like 180. So now you're like, wow, this program is amazing. They're making 180,000 coming out and they're excited. But what you don't realize is that person has all this experience that you didn't have where a lot of the more traditional financial engineering programs, you're going from undergrad straight into this master's it's when you come out, you should be expecting 80 to 100, 70 to 100, something in that range. But there's a lot of these outliers are being included into the data. And I don't think schools are doing a good job at divvying these out and saying, hey, straight undergrads are making an average of say like 80, 85, 90. And then, you know, the ones that had work experience in the past, they're coming out making 110, 120. So I think the salary is kind of a way to kind of fudge your rankings as well. And again, going back to what you said, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I started the program, there was all these rumors of other programs that had lied and cheated and put out fake stats to make the program better so you get more applicants into the, the system and the school's making more money. But at the same time, now it encourages, you know, other programs to keep up with that, that tick mark. If you got to, if they're fudging their numbers, we got to fudge our numbers, you know, you try start trying to justify this in your head. Like it's only fair, we're just averaging it out. Everyone's gonna have the same. But the people that really take the hit from this is the students because you spend, you know, $100,000, $70,000, something for a degree and you come out working and I don't know, I don't know, say a marketing analytics job, you're making 45 to 50 and now you get this massive student loan on your back. And so it's kind of an unfair advantage. I don't think a lot of the programs see. And there are programs that are like, honestly, out there quoting numbers and putting out prices and perhaps are in bigger cities with bigger salaries. But at the end of the day, trying to wrangle this idea of data and the statistics behind it of how much experience do the graduates have, um, which numbers are actually real, where are the jobs going, for example, what city are they working in? 
all these things kind of shake out the salary to see more of a realistic picture of what's happening. And then to make it worse, you go on to, I don't know, like these Wall Street Oasis nonsense websites where it's a bunch of like, I don't know, 15, 16 year old kids on there typing on their keyboard talking about, you know, oh, I'm making $10 million and I'm working at this firm. Most of that's garbage and lies, or it's like they know that one friend of theirs that's making that half million dollars, but it really does make the picture even unclear and kind of this fairy tale. And then when you graduate, you're kind of upset because it's not a reality anymore. In addition to what we talked about before, you know, how all the program is and make sure you, you, you see where people are working currently, is, 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 is the, the cohort made up of undergraduates or people that have worked before with experience because I've seen both. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a program that has experienced hires in it, but I think they should definitely, when they put out stats for like ranking programs, they should state that like, you know, 30% of ours had past experience or 50% had past experience kind of helps give you more, at least a hint that something's off. Because some of them do say, you know, we, we take in uh, people from, uh, you know, with experience or, but these are such small, tiny points that unless you know, you won't pick up on that. You'll say, okay, well, I'm working and how much money they're making. So I guess I'm going to make that kind of money. Right. Which is a bit, uh, missing, it's a bit misleading because as you said, not, it's an average. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've conducted the surveys myself. Uh, is this an actual survey? Is this um, a blind? You know, you're asking people and they're answering or do you have actual the name of the person in case you ever get audited? But even if you have all that information, it doesn't mean you're going to make that money. Right? right. Especially when you're talking about risk management, then you're talking about, you know, hedge funds, or you're talking about data analysis. I mean, I guess your point is that, you know, be a purist, do it because you like doing it. So you don't, you won't be disappointed. So don't, don't look for the end result, uh, which I always tell my student, don't always look for the diploma. Because you're so focused on the diploma all the time, um, you're missing the experience, right? And then if you get the diploma, you don't get the money. So well, that was a big waste of time. So now you made relationship, learned something that's of interest. I mean, yeah, you could make lots of money, right? The first year. And then uh, I know students that made, that did very well. They got a job. I mean, they graduated and they got the RFRM and they moved one place. Two years later, they moved to somewhere else and they're already VP and they're doing great. But at some point, we all know that you're going to become too expensive. Right. And then the market is going to change uh, like it happened for these uh, poor souls at Lehman Brothers in 2008 and it's over. So it cannot be just. Yeah. And I, I can say too on my end, like I came out of school, like super excited. I'm going to make all this money and I got a really good offer to come out. And then it's like over the years, my salary's gotten bumped and increased and bonuses change your structures and all that. And now it's like, it's great. You go from, you know, X amount to X amount plus $30,000 or something. It's like, I don't know. It doesn't really matter to me at the end of the day. It's like, it's nice. I'm comfortably living. And I think there's a point where it's like, you make so much money. Everything on top of that's like awesome. And it's, you feel appreciated for the first month or two when you get the promotion. And then you just go back to the, really, the regular kind of grind, right? I'm just out here doing stats and doing math. And I think it also comes from a success point too, because I've seen a lot of students graduate and they hated the programs. And then they get the job and they're making the money. And then like three years into it, they just go, this is not what I wanted to do. I hate the job. It's boring. Yeah. And a, a friend of mine graduated. She said, you know, this is like, I hated it. She goes, I hated the management. I hated the hours. I hated the job. I don't like math at all, but that's what my parents wanted me to do. And so she ended up quitting and now she works in fashion in New York city and loves her job. But again, it took that, right. That $70,000 masters and two years of time and, 
all this stress and effort and jobs. And then finally you get to the end, you realize, Hey, I probably should have thought about it at the beginning and said, Hey, do I want to work in quantitative finance? Do I like doing math and stats every day? Or am I more of like a people person or do I like some other type of skill? So I do think it's important. Yeah. The salary, I think kind of makes it all exciting and hypes and it's marketing, but also looking at what do you want to do in the long run? will have a big impact on your career. So I guess as a student, what you need to do is you need to talk to people. I mean, right. Side is okay. You need to go on, you need to, you, you know, you need to listen to people, talk to people. There's a few uh, podcasts, there's a few uh, uh, channels that, that explain, you know, this, this process, but you need to find it. You need to look for it, you need to find it. You can't just go on the website and just look at the ranking, look at the salary and say, okay, this sounds good to me because you're right. That's a lot of money. Right. A time, right? And if you end up not doing this, what a waste, what a waste. Communication or curriculum versus the networking? Yeah, we could talk a little bit about curriculums and getting into like the nitty gritties of other non-quantitative things in the programs. Yes. So we've covered curriculum a bit where we talk about the rigor and I made a video on it and some of the other directors from one of the top 10, top 15 programs commented on it. And he talked about the same thing, which is like, we want to measure rigor, but it's extremely hard to measure it. There's no easy way to say like my program is, you know, rigor of 90 out of 100 and your program is a rigor of 85 out of 100. It's just really hard to measure and it's really hard to do. Um, it's why a lot of times I don't like ranking programs, but if I do, I require, I go on campus, I sit in the classrooms, I listen to the professors, I want to see the interaction the students have, and then I interview students afterwards. And like, I really want to know the, the details because I had students like complaining to me because there's no professors around me and a student just sitting there chatting about, you know, how's the program going? What do you like about it? But again, coming back to that curriculum part, it's really hard to rank curriculum. It's really hard to judge it. But at the same time, you want to make sure, at least for me, one of the indications here is when you see a ton of finance classes listed, it's, it's not going to be a financial engineering program because the students that we find that do the best when you hire them in the industry are those that are very uh, like theoretically driven. So I can teach you how to do math and stats and it's not necessarily applied. But a lot of times when you take the applied courses, what ends up happening is that they, they get in a mindset where they can't think outside of that application. So one of the best examples here is, um, for example, like the Gini coefficient. And so I work in credit risk for some of my jobs I've done. And people in the industry are convinced like Gini coefficient is invented and created in credit risk. And that's the only place you can use it. And so then I have this argument with them like, hey, I have an economics background that was actually invented to do, you know, income inequality. So you can start looking at like the Gini coefficient and start talking about it. And they're shocked that you can apply it to different things. But again, having a lot of theoretical rigor in the curriculum, it's important. Even though like when I graduated, I thought this is a waste of time. I took way too much math. It's not going to be applicable. But when they start throwing you into different areas and different jobs, you really start being able to connect the dots quicker than somebody that might've been trained to do a specific calculation in a specific industry. So in general, like curriculum wise, I like to see math and stats. I hate seeing business and finance classes because the MBA classes I took that were the finance classes were word for word, textbook for textbook, the exact same class I took in my undergrad for finance. I will say something about that though. Um, you know, uh, we do have uh, quite a bit of uh, projects with, uh, you know, for our capstone projects. And more often than not, you know, students go into this project thinking, okay, I'm going to be using all the things that I've learned. Well, not always. 
sometimes you get into but it's could be the same thing when you get a job right that you mm-hmm. that you you're not going to apply any of those things we we hired you because you're smart and because uh quality of the the education of uh, your interview process but you're not going to be using every single item that you learn and i mean sometimes you do but, but very often that's not the case so and, and that's why it's important to emphasize to students that you you need you know you need to be versatile you, you need to realize that don't get like all focused on the oh, i gotta get some math i gotta get some engineering and finance and then when i come out they're gonna ask me to do to start uh, using machine learning uh or uh spectacular cast calculus and pricing derivatives right this is what i'm gonna do no no we actually want you to go out and structure a transaction which has nothing to do with anything <laughs> but, but you have to be ready to, and I've seen that because often I'll get the students ready for the program and they say, okay, what do I do next? I say, well, no, this is not, this is not a class where you get to actually, we don't tell you, okay, do this. And then we grade you. And then you understand the topic. This you have to kind of, and this is where the networking comes in as well, where you want to make sure that students are, because quants tend to be very, and you mentioned one of your videos, which I thought was funny, but quant people tends to be very, they don't laugh much, you know, the idea that they're in front of a spreadsheet all day <laughs> and they just, uh, you know, oh my God, uh, tell me what to do, I'll do it well, but don't tell me, I, I'm not going to have any initiatives whatsoever. Yeah, and I see that a lot. It's, it's one of the things I want to like just beat out of the people in my channel to like all these videos and watching and training is there's a checkbox mentality. Like everyone always asks me, hey, what are the five books I've got to read or how can I program within like three days? And it's kind of just like, you just write, scratch your head, right? You're so frustrated. It's like, there's so many levels and depths and kind of like you're mentioning, right? I took stochastic calculus, which I thought was awesome. expanded the way I think and learn. I don't work with derivative products. Uh, I do time series. So I'm connecting stochastic processes, but it's not the same material at all. And then I've spent year for the last five years only doing mainly focusing on my personal time on time series. And I'm digging every year deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it's like, you can pick one topic and you can spend an entire career just doing one thing. But I think a lot of people always have that checkbox mentality, which is like, all right, stochastic calculus, check, right? Data science, check. And then industry, right? That's what I was mentioning before is having that depth and kind of that rigor in the curriculum is important. So like those class projects are crucial because when you get learned in a textbook, a lot of times the data is nice and pretty and it follows a pattern and there's already a predefined code and an answer for it. But when you do real world problems, a lot of times things don't work out. And then you learn better because you're kind of wrestling with the different ideas and concepts to get it kind of all put on paper. So, uh, which is not an easy thing to do for students, and uh, and that's why I think it's important to make sure you know the type of uh, you know the work that you're going to be um, be doing, and also the way you bring in the student, like interviewing the students. And that's why students have to be very careful to make sure they interview well, because uh, you know we look at this as to okay, is this person going to be able to be versatile enough? Yeah, I know he's good in math. Yeah, that's just not enough anymore, especially with all these, these hedge funds uh, going by the wayside. What about the educational environment? Okay, so this is, a, this is a big one and I think most people don't talk about it. I think part of it comes from the fact that quants and people in the quantitative maths, engineering areas, we're so focused on math, we like fail to stop and look up at the soft side of things. <laughs> so like the environment of the program is really big. Uh, One of the key parts here is the cohorts in your program. If all of the students have the same mentality, that can be good and that can be bad. Uh, One of the benefits I found was that I went to college, both my degrees, uh, in smaller college towns, which was really beneficial because 
there's nothing else to do. Like you're at school to go to school. And so it was always fun to like meet up with other students and say, Hey, you know, we have like math 526 that's due on Wednesday. Let's all get together and like start working through the assignments and working as a team. And we ended up creating a group, at least the one I was in, where it was like one of us was the computer science expert. One was the math expert. One was the stats expert. And we ended up being able to help each other learn better just because the environment and the students. I think if I was in New York city, I would have spent more of my time probably not doing uh, actual academics and studying. And so I think a lot of that would have been a kind of a disadvantage for me in the studying side. Uh, the staff in the programs is something else that's very, very hard to rank or to think about. But we had a professor uh, who was a chief risk officer at a hedge fund, and then he just loved to teach. So he was just teaching on the side. He'd fly in from New York City and come and teach. And then he ended up hiring a friend of his that was a CRO at another company. And that guy was flying in every Friday to teach our class from New York back and forth. But I learned more from him than any other professor because A, he took the time to like sit down and teach you like in the industry, this isn't how it's done. Let me show you like why it doesn't work. And he could really like engage you in the topics. So having that on the campus and the university was good. Also having staff support is crucial. So some professors were just mean and nasty and they worked there essentially their nine to five. They didn't care about the students. But there were a lot of resources on campus that we had access to from like career counseling and advisors and professors to talk to and people that kind of cared and supported you. And then at the same time, right, we had a bunch of other students that were all kind of rallying with you in the same program and we're kind of doing it as a team. And I think there are a lot of universities I've seen that it's like the rigor's not so high, the homework's not really the focus, they're off kind of doing their own daily lives and they're not really focused on the materials. And so kind of picking a program that fits your background, like, do you really want that big city feel? Do you want to be in New York or Chicago? It's awesome. It's great to network and connect with professionals. But at the same time, you might not be able to focus as much on your academics. Or do you want that small town feel where you hopefully have better attention to you? So one of the, I guess, rankings that we would like to see, a lot of people have talked about is number of students per class. So if you're in a class of 100 students, you're not going to get any attention. And a lot of financial engineering is complicated and it makes no sense until you get all these pieces put together in your mind. But having smaller classes is usually more beneficial because you make better relationships with the kids around you. And then you also get better attention from the professors. So picking schools, I think that's crucial. So look at the environment, look at the resources you have, uh, look at career development. So that's a huge, huge thing here. I've seen some of the worst written resumes from the brightest people and then they go unemployed and they already have a financial engineering degree from another country and they come to the US, they get another degree here and then they graduate and they don't have a well-written resume. They don't have the interpersonal skills, things that like programs should be trying to pull into is how do you talk to people in the industry? How do you interview well? Um, I'm an example, probably the worst, the worst case scenario because we had free interview services, but I was like, I mean, I mean I'm even American. So I speak English. Most of my classmates didn't speak English. But I was like too embarrassed to go down and sit with somebody and say, hey, let's have a fake interview and like go through the process. So for me, I failed probably a good 50, 60 interviews before I even got an offer from someone. And looking back, it was like, wow, I was, that was really dumb. Like I should have just spent the time with someone who didn't matter, who was there to train you and give you feedback. But it's hard to overcome, I think, a lot of these barriers, especially for a lot of quants, because we're not really social beings outside of our kind of circle of friends. So... Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, student development, I mean, it, it is about, uh, you know, resume writing and interviewing, but, you know, keep in mind that uh, the field is, is so specific that not everyone 
can actually give good advice you know on how to write a a cv you know what are the terms that people want to hear in the market right you can't put everything in there in some of your projects there's always a even though I, I teach, I also help the student write the resumes because I used to hire them. So I, I, I say, you know, these are the things, it, it's a bit of a conundrum because, uh, yeah, I want to I write my resume, show me how to do it. Well, it all depends. I mean, <laughs> it depends what you want to do and what's in it and uh, in the interview process. Yeah, it's all going to depend who you're going to have in front of you. I mean, I've seen interview people listen, they say thank you and they don't say a word. So student development is that. But it's also, and I found it very useful, is that to listen, you know, to other students, of course, you're already in the program, but to see how other students did to get their jobs. Right? Mm-hmm. From the one that said, you know what, I got the job, it's great, but it's not a corn job. I wish I had taken more time. Or to the fact that very often for corn jobs, what you don't realize is if you start in September and you go to apply and Tell me, the, tell me what's, what you think about that. But what I've heard is that you start in September and you get a, a job interview in December, but to be interviewed for an actual quant jobs, it's not just tell me what you think. It's like, okay, show me. I can't do it yet because I haven't been taught yet because I just started. <laughs> then they have to wait until the end of the year when they've done it and then they interview. Right? The only issue sometimes is for foreign students right, is that they need to find a job well before the end of the year to get the, the paperwork in, and then they can't get it because they haven't been taught everything. So it's kind of a, therefore, the solution to that is the networking. So that, right. and I think from the top schools, what happens is they say, listen, you want three students? I'm going to get you three students and you already know what you're getting. So right. The conundrum that these students have that uh, uh, not only they have to worry about the grades, but then they have to say, I got to get a job. But it's not just go out and send your resume. Well, I hate to say this, but I partially blame this on the business side because so banking's banking a little bit's messed up on its own. It's mainly ran by business people. And there's plenty of finances taking over. There's kind of this internal battle that no one wants to talk about. And so it's like we're battling out, trying to figure out who's going to win. And most banks and financial institutions don't build banks for quants. Like they don't realize our degrees are different. Our education is different. Our training is different. I heard somebody saying they were hiring at some of the business schools now. So the business schools keep extending the time frame. back about five, six years when I was doing it, they were hiring and interviewing in like November and December. And I talked to a buddy of mine a few years ago and he said, no, 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 it's, it's starting in like September now in like August. And then I talked to another student and he said, no, 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 they're, they're starting now. Like at the end of the school year, they're hiring for the following summer. This is crazy. Like, A, the student that you interviewed this year is not going to be the same student that you're going to get next year because education changes, preferences change, everything's so dynamic. And then like you're saying too, it's, it's easier for the bigger programs a lot of times. And like, I've been trying to figure out how do I set up a feeder between like the bank I'm at or the businesses I'm at and how do I hook that up with a school? But it takes two halves. But if you can get that connection there, it's so much easier for the bank to hire. It's so much easier for the programs because now I can wait until like we're getting close to hiring. And then I have a whole list of students I can go through an interview and talk to and then make that connection. But again, I think it comes from the business side. They're kind of scared to make changes. Like they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to look at the financial engineering programs. They think we're just going to run out, hire a few people. So sometimes they think like our effort on the banking side as well is a little behind where it should be as an industry. So it's, it's challenging yeah. on both sides of it. It's interesting <laughs> because one of my students told me, you know, I was interviewing 
and uh, at the HR level, and uh, the, the the person would say, you know, you should be. A, are you a PhD? Because you know, you're not a master's. Student. You know, they used to. Some they don't know what to do unless you have a very unless you have a quad in front of you, which is not always the case. The HR people, there's no way they're going to be able to evaluate. I guess it's easier to evaluate a finance person because you understand finance, you know, how, mm-hmm. interest rates and things like that. But when you talk about artificial intelligence or machine learning or deep learning, you wouldn't even know what it is on the on the on the, the resume. So you wouldn't be able to, to question to ask anything. And, and yeah, it it goes to me, it goes to what I always tell people. There's two types of interviews, and for quants specifically is. HR is looking, they're like looking at a list and they want to just check the boxes like, hey, this hiring manager says, you know, can you program? Can you program in MATLAB? And like, oh yeah, it's great. You check the boxes. So you have to prepare for two types of people and two types of interviews. You got to be dumb it down, keep it simple, just say yes or no, give a few short examples, make them feel good about themselves. And then they're the gatekeeper that says, all right, this guy's really smart. Let me pass him on. But then you got to switch hats and you got to go, okay, now I'm in front of an actual quant who's doing the job. I got to interview for that specifically. And so I think that's another challenge we face in general. Right? We can't be a quant when you have the HR interview. You got to be an average person and yeah. yes or no. And I even interviewed at one of the biggest tech firms. And they started asking me, have you done like hypothesis testing? And I was so shocked. Like, what do you mean hypothesis test? I was like, you mean like p-values? And this lady's like, yeah, so you haven't done it before? Now this is the basics. But again, I, I was just so taken off from such a basic question. I should have just said, yeah, I've done that before. I've done all this testing for all these different projects and made it sound exciting. And then when I would have gotten in front of the hiring managers, you could have been like, oh, here's the details. You, know, but- you could avoid all that if you use your relationship and your, uh, you should be able to be hired without having to show your resume. So they already know you, but of course it's hard to. Yeah. So, final topic. <laughs> all right. Online. What is your view on that? <laughs> so I'm going to offend so many people with this, but I hate online degrees for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason why, so you'll see really good programs will even have their own online versions. One, you get to realize it's a marketing tool for a lot of these programs. They're looking for a cheaper cost. How can we bring in more students, scale up these operations and give out more degrees? But at the same time, I think the hardest thing is how do you test these students? Because I've taken online classes in college and they were always like half the rigor of an actual course. And then they can set time, time frames. So for example, here's an exam. We have a timer. Once you open the exam, you know, you get an hour and then the window closes out and you can't take the rest of the exam, which makes sense. But at the same time is how do you prevent me from Googling that? How do you prevent me from pulling a textbook out and highlighting everything before the exams and then just racing through the exams? Or how do you, like, for example, I mentioned we studied in a group. It was the stats guy, the math guy, the computer science guy. How do you know we aren't sitting together at home? all with the same exam up and one guy filling everything out and then switching. But I think what we should, we should mention there is online and the one that you're describing is that you never get, you never see anything. Yeah. Something needs to be said about live sessions. Right? Okay. Because uh, there's a few, I'm not going to name names, but there's a few uh, uh, programs that, you know, essentially are based in one town and they could teach in another because they're not in a metropolitan area. But it's not online. It's basically you have a camera in that town and you got a bunch of students in the metropolitan area looking at it from a distance. That's, that, that, I know we kind of, it's online because you're not, you're not in front, but it's live. You're, you're in front of a professor. I like the concept, the idea of like the new advancement, but you have to be able to ask questions and the live part would have to be able to capture the students asking the questions. 
-hmm. So I've watched a lot of like YouTube videos on these classes where they're recorded and it's awesome. But a lot of times the student in the back is asking the question and it's not caught on the audio. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages of brick and mortar schools is that I, I'm confused. I don't know what the heck's going on here. So I raised my hand, I asked a question and the kid next to me didn't know either, but he didn't ask. So now it's great because someone's willing to ask, someone's willing to share. And like you were saying, the, the live thing would help get around that. So I think that's an advantage as long as you can move microphones to capture questions and involvement as if you're in a classroom. And like the homework side is fine, right? Same concept as online versus school, not a lot of difference. But that exam piece is really, I think, the kicker for me. And even in a brick and mortar school, I did see cheating in my master's program where students would wait, a teacher would leave the room for a second for some reason, and students were like sharing work. You would see <laughs> verbatim, right? The exams look the exact same for these students, and yet there was no accountability, there was no involvement. And then culturally, I think it's another big impact is that the United States has a very anti-cheating culture, but a lot of cultures don't see it as ethically wrong or as morally wrong as we do. And so while they might be cheating, they might not think it's a big deal. And I've actually seen a program that actually kicked out a handful of students because they were caught in a ring of cheating. And that goes back to that online thing of, I think it's great because it's cheaper on the school, it's cheaper on the student, you can provide better value. That's where it kind of gets challenging of how do you add that value and kind of that certification to it. I can't go anymore, otherwise it's gonna be a, a two hour podcast. We have to do a part one and part two. And I cut it short on some of it. So I wanted to thank you very much, Dimitri. Uh, and if uh, you are a student, you should really listen to this uh, podcast or video quite understand some of the major topics. You know, how old is a program? Things like how many undergraduates are in the program already to make sure that you're not. So when you look at the salaries, you know, you're really looking at the right type of information, understand the type of jobs that's available understand what's going on with hedge funds. It's not what it used to be. Things are changing and uh, specifically and the money also. Don't, don't get too hyped up on the money. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me.